You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Yulia Svedkov, a professor in the Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington. She's done a lot of interesting work on multilingual NLP, NLP for social good, and language generation. Yulia's PhD thesis is titled Linguistic Knowledge in Data-Driven Natural Language Processing, which she completed in 2016 at CMU. We talk about how she got started in research, then move to Yulia's work in the thesis that combines ideas from linguistics and natural language processing. We talk about low-resource and multilingual NLP, and of course, their intersection with large language models. Yulia gives a lot of really great advice on choosing things to work on, research vision, and research in industry versus academia. So be sure to stay around for the whole episode. As with the previous interview, this was actually recorded in late 2022, so you'll notice that some of the recent work we talk about is from that time period. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com thesisreview or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Yulia Svetkov with Linguistic Knowledge in Data-Driven Natural Language Processing on the Thesis Review. Yeah, so thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm, I'm really excited to go back and take a look at what you did during your thesis, connect it with today's day, and just talk about how things have changed, uh, as well as what has kind of stayed the same over the years. And I think before, like talking about your thesis, maybe if we could just talk about like how you got started in research. And so like, even before the PhD, what kind of led up to you becoming interested in doing research and eventually in doing a PhD? So first, thank you again. We had the conversation before the recording, <laughs> but I will repeat. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you for taking time, actually reading my thesis. Uh, looking forward to our conversation. And about how I started PhD, <laughs> I don't know. The story is not very inspiring, I think. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, I was, I, I, when I graduated with my undergrad, I just went to work to a software company. I never studied NLP in the undergrad. I never took courses. And then um, when I got pregnant, I realized I don't want to spend nine hours uh, as an engineer and uh, not seeing my children. And I thought that master's degree in Israel will give me much more flexibility in time, much more free time. Uh, and I just went to do master's just because for for totally different for uninspiring <laughs> un ideological reasons but uh yeah when when i started doing my masters i uh, 
I met a professor, an LP professor in uh, Haifa University, Shuli Wintner, and he was so passionate about linguistics and about NLP. And he was such an amazing mentor that I just got really excited about the field. I don't think I would learn about NLP and would be excited if I didn't have this luck to meet one specific person. And after that, I started reading and I, re I found the whole kind of world <laughs> there that I was not aware of. Uh, and the, then I applied already for PhD. And uh, we moved to the United States, and this is where I started uh, doing research. Yeah, so mm -hmm. the initial reasons were totally kind of, this was random. I just got lucky <laughs> to get into NLP research. Mm. I think those are sometimes the most inspirational stories, because there's probably, probably a lot of people listening that, um, I mean, like some people are able to kind of like know exactly what is going to happen. It seems like like six years from now but others might be on like a different sort of path. And so hearing that it is like possible to uh, kind of pick it up a bit later and then um, ultimately yeah. start doing a PhD is, I think those are the most inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really believe now I, I look, my, my daughter is 16 and I was like at the time, I don't know, 20 or 25. And like at that time it's, from 20 to 25, it's really, really difficult what you want to do. Difficult to know what you want to do in life. I, like those few people who really know from the beginning are very lucky. Mm -hmm. But other than that, yeah, uh, it's yeah. hard. And, uh, and, and then uh, it's important. I just started to value what does it mean to have a right mentor? Because it really depends on... Uh, on the right person who introduces you to the field to understand mm -hmm. it's how interested it is, how complicated, how, how fun. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I see. So then as you, when you started your PhD, did you have a kind of rough idea of what you would want to uh, work on? Oh. My, uh, I think, um, I did not have good idea what I want to do when I started my PhD. I always had uh, some random creative ideas. I did not have a big picture. I, when I, from the first project with Shuli, I started reading about it and I happened to start reading about machine translation. So I started learning about machine translation. And once I start understanding reading papers, I uh, had, ide had ideas within that field without knowing what I will do throughout my PhD. And overall, throughout my PhD, until maybe the defense, I did not know what my thesis will be about. I was just reading, got interested in the field, coming up with ideas and did not constrain myself on specific fields. And then looking back, I could construct a story, <laughs> what my PhD is about. And even honestly, my thesis proposal was very different from my thesis defense in terms of scope, topics. Mm. I, I was just trying not to constrain myself about like, who am I? The signature, I am a person who works on machine translation or I work on multilinguality or I'm interested in machine learning or I'm interested in linguistics. 
I feel all those boundaries uh, are not always useful. Mm, I see. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting because reading through it, it seems very like a cohesive structure. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. But if you look at papers, they are very, very unrelated from uh, phonology with loan words and then metaphor and then machine translation and long language models and very, very different things. So the story about linguistic knowledge under, underlying um, NLP, it was, it, it was post hoc. Many of it was post hoc. I was just interested in specific studies and then kind of bro growing my vision broader over time. Mm, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard from, from various people that like, I think actually, so my advisor uh, in, during my PhD, Kyung In show, he always said that it's sometimes easier to do research and then look back and summarize than to like summarize ahead of time. <laughs> I, I believe it very much because in research, we also don't know what the outcome will be. Otherwise, we are very, very constrained. It's very often that initial hypotheses don't work and we need to be open minded and flexible in terms of where the research leads us. And it's the same I, uh, with uh, now when I already have a team and people that I have experience with people doing it for five years, four years, three years, I see how vision changes over time. And it's nice initially have some rough idea what I'm interested in, but uh, I feel it, it can be very even harmful, like restricting creativity to stick to those ideas, no matter what. Mm. So I very much believe that and of looking back, just following the passion and interests and uh, just exploration and also experimental results that lead, may lead us to different directions. Uh, and then looking back and understanding it can be, can be more productive and more interesting, more inventive. Once like you stay in the field already for years, start developing this also vision looking forward but i feel like it's a matter of ex these experiences when you don't actually know where you're going and then you look back and then you write the story so then in terms of um like as you're starting to do this work or like looking at the the thesis there is this consistent theme of uh, linguistics and nlp and like in the introduction uh, you even wrote that like the goal is to bridge theoretical linguistics and applied NLP. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what was kind of the backstory of the interest in linguistics? And um... I, I kind of I actually believe in this story still. Maybe it's expanded a little bit now. It's mm -hmm. not only linguistics from my perspective, but uh, when you start working on a new problem, um, and ideally you would choose a problem that is not very much explored. I'm, I almost during my PhD, I almost didn't do papers that take an existing kind of system, existing research question, existing system, and do some incremental improvement with an existing baseline. I tried to introduce new problems. And when you are trying to introduce new problem, you need some grounding and linguistics linguistic theory or is a science is a study of language that gives some grounding in to kind of how to we uh, 
formulate our hypothesis and how we operationalize different uh, ideas. Mm-hmm. And overall, I've moved on now from looking only at linguistics to only looking at social, also looking at social science, political science, and other areas. But I feel that the, the theory and and uh, gives some can give some proper framework on and of where the boundary of our hypothesis, how to evaluate it, even if this theory is not entirely correct, but it gives some of understanding and of what do we expect as a result and how do we evaluate whether something works or not. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a, some, I don't know, base, uh, something that underlies basically then the systems that we build. That's yeah. how, how I saw it. and. I think that's how I see it now these days too. Although, yeah. like, I, I of course I, I understand how little we rely on linguistics, and that I believe kind of the right. I believe kind of I understand why, and I believe that's the right thing to do these days, because empirically it, it gives very little advantage having linguistically motivated structures. But I also see a lot of drawbacks in existing architectures, in existing advances, because we don't take this theory and knowledge into account. Mm. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's almost like, you know, one could think about just linguistics in terms of like what we should add to a model or something. But I think you're saying that like the underlying understanding of linguistics and the framework it gives you Mm-hmm. could kind of drive the ideas that you use as a researcher or even like define what problems are yeah, important. Yeah, it's, it's or, a sort of grounding. Yeah. If you want to start to break new ground, uh, you need uh, to start from somewhere, to start from mm-hmm. some insights, not only from your own intuitions. And then this is where I believe that like we need to bring theory from somewhere. NLP is this weird interdisciplinary field that uh, <laughs> like this weird field of computer. If you ask a computer scientist 50 years ago that uh, the, your system would analyze uh, mental health issues in uh, conversations uh, on some social media, it would not sound like a computer science. <laughs> mm-hmm. But this is what we do. And we are computer scientists, but if we want to solve these interdisciplinary tasks, I feel like we need to bring theory from disciplines that are involved. Mm-hmm. I see. So like as a, as a PhD student, what, like, where did you obtain the grounding? Was like part of your, was a lot of your time, like actually learning about all self-learned. theories? Self-learned. Yeah. 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 And I did not start from linguistic. So I say my, the first uh, chapter or whatever the first, I think it was loanwords, right? First chapter of my thesis. And I, I started from a concrete task. The concrete task was we wanted to work on African languages, very low resource languages, language like Swahili. And there is no, almost no resources for Swahili, barely any resources. But we wanted to build a machine translation and the, how do you start with it? Phrase-based translation systems don't work. 
So I started from reading Wikipedia about understanding what is a language, what, so, what is Zoeli as a language. I originally was thinking to look at syntax, but when I read about Swahili, I read about also the history of Swahili and learned that there was a lot of influence from Arabic. And then I would go actually to, to, understand, to understand what what the phenomenon of lexical borrowing is. And then I would go to linguistic theories that uh, kind of explain and uh, um, simulate the process of linguistic borrowing. And then I would go back to our field and try to operationalize it computationally. So it was like a mix of self-learn, like starting from the actual practical question, then going to understand the background, then learning about theory, and then trying back to operationalize it, no matter how crazy it sounded to operationalize the optimality theory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so as you mentioned, so the first thing was about this morphophonological knowledge, and it used this idea of optimality theory. And just to give like a flavor of the type of problem, was it you were trying to like at the word level go from a word in one language to one in like Swahili or some other really low resource language? Yeah, when, when you try to build a machine translation system, but you don't even have bilingual dictionary. Mm. So like, practically I needed to bring a bilingual dictionary, Swahili, English bilingual dictionary. And uh, I did not like the idea of recruiting Swahili speakers. I wanted to build something computational. So mm. then I learned about the influence of, of Arabic on Swahili, and Arabic is a research-rich language, and there is Arabic English, relatively big Arabic English machine translation systems. And then I thought that through English, like from English to Arabic, uh, to Swahili, we can use Arabic as a pivot language. But since there is no parallel corpus, we can use uh, lexical borrowing as a form of, and of bridging between the two languages, between Arabic and Swahili. So it was actually motivated by practical reasons, but solutions came from reading about you know, the history of the language and linguistic theories that explained actually what we can do with this limited data creatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I was reading, so I, I haven't done research in this area, so I was reading some, Sebastian Ruder has a blog post about uh, like multilingual and low resource NLP. And there was actually some really recent work on expanding pre-trained models to thousands more languages via lexicon-based adaptation. Yeah, that's very cool, yeah. Yeah, and it seems like this idea of having some bilingual lexicon, and I think they use it for like synthetic data, came into the picture again. And so it was really interesting to read about that and then kind of look at this lexical borrowing. Yeah, I didn't give up on it too. Even in currently, like in our ongoing work, um, we have really big language models for English, but we still have little resources Swahili, Kinyarwanda, Malagasy for African languages, for various Indian languages. But we do, we can obtain bilingual dictionaries. So we actually are even now looking at uh, like our recent work, Mikola, that we kind of discussed before we started recording. Mm-hmm. controllable generation and actually can we bring a uh, bilingual dictionary to enable very low resource 
machine translation when we already have some bilingual dictionaries and the strong target language models. Uh, but now with new techniques, with uh, controllable language generation. Uh, so I, I believe that those old resources, they're still useful, just in a very, very different experimental setup in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah, it goes back to this thing of like, it's hard to predict. Well, it's hard to predict like the outcomes of research, but it's also hard to predict like exactly how something will have impact because like the methods themselves change and then... Uh, oh, totally. Yeah. I, it's totally impossible to predict what will be impactful or not. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, very different. Like some of my favorite works are kind of... Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, the lowest, my lowest cited papers. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think overall, it's all useful. It's just the question is whether the impact will be shorter term or longer term. And like, obviously, it doesn't have to come from my work. Many, many people in parallel work on similar ideas. So some of them pick up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also want to just ask generally about this like setting of the low resource languages. So to me, it seems like it's becoming like a kind of major, like has it kind of grown over the years into something that um, more and more people are starting to look into, especially now that, you know, some of the massive pre-trained models are pre-trained on multiple languages. And this idea of like having the model support things beyond English, I think is becoming more and more important. So just in general, like, how have you seen it from your perspective, like the idea of multilingual models or these like really low resource settings um, over time? Well, I'm probably biased here because for me, it was a, from my perspective, there was always interest mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in multilinguality and low resource NLP. I understand that many, many big major labs in uh, in in the field of NLP did not care about multilinguality for many years but uh, there was always a community of people that uh, that understand uh, the importance of building multilingual uh, solutions it was also very much motivated by funding historically by government funding, by DARPA funding, but always these were like geopolitically or kind of, uh, strategically important languages like Chinese, Russian, Arabic. But uh, now we see more and more the motivation for building larger multilingual inclusive systems uh, changes. And also we see very, very interesting trends in how multilinguality in, is treated. So if earlier we needed just to, you know, just to build some system that some broken machine translation system into some uh, even big resource, not poor language, like, uh, I don't know, Chinese Mandarin language, it would be a success. At this time, the machine trans baseline systems are much stronger and the research problems become much more interesting. So we are moving from, um, say, a few good translation systems to multiple good translation systems. We are moving from 7,000 languages in the world to uh, 
every language having hundreds or thousands of language varieties, dialects. So the problem of multilinguality becomes much, much more fun-grained. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are moving from uh, just uh, being able to build a machine translation system for big language to be- being able to build machine translation system for a population and then hopefully in the future into really user adaptive translation system that includes it's, it's already more distant future that currently <laughs> feel doesn't exist but this is the direction the trend going to into multilinguality at much finer and my, finer grained level when we incorporate not only linguist, linguistic uh, kind of differences but also social differences cultural differences and making translation systems or other multilingual systems uh, more adaptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. And and yeah. The, is, it, is it like very long answers? <laughs> no, it's good. I, all I do is, is ask questions. So the longer the answer is actually the better. <laughs> but um, yeah, so a, a couple of people have been on the podcast now, like um, the most recent ones that come to mind is like Armando Solar Lozama from MIT was on um and he was talking about program synthesis and at the time when he started working on program synthesis it was because he was you know like really interested in it and it was just this like small close-knit community and then now it's kind of like blown up and you know it's there's like all these economic incentives but but behind like getting better at program synthesis and like Mm -hmm. code at large corporations so that was more what i was yeah curious about with the multilingual nlp that it's almost like you uh, uh, like initially you have to just be really interested in something and then like or or yeah like how do you yeah yeah. (laughs) you have to be really interested in some what the story that you talk about armando is actually reminds me of more of my research on computational ethics when we were working on understand building kind of a system to detect gender bias or to rephrase Around 2016, there was uh, it was totally irrelevant. There was barely one or two papers that talks about uh, bias and embeddings. Uh, but for multilinguality, I always felt when when I joined, I was really interested, and in part it's because I myself I, I speak three typologically very very diverse languages, and I understand the challenge. I've been an immigrant uh, or non-native speaker for most of my life since the age of 13 when I moved to Israel and uh, having to build resources for Hebrew and then for Russian uh, it always kind of I always understood the importance and diversity linguistic diversity that it's not only about English and uh, yeah 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 that's why I was interested I guess because of my personal background maybe yeah that makes sense and then um yeah the other thing you said about like the as the methods get better and better then you can get to more like interesting more like uh kind of like nuanced personalized situations one like yeah i I was actually asking some other people for uh questions about this multilingual area and it actually (laughs) ends up being a question that i was just also wondering like with these big language, I think everyone's kind of wondering, like with these really big language models, if we just train a language model on a bunch of different languages, kind of where does that start to break down? Um, 
is it that like if you try to do some kind of like few shot adaptation to a new language you can't possibly capture an entire language like in a few examples or what's kind of your intuition um or is this going to be the solution that's a good question um the problem is that probably there is not enough data even for huge language models to represent the richness of linguistic diversities. So there are areas that are always resource poor. It's not only about multilinguality. It's about various domains, right? Even within uh, English, there are very low resource domains that have the same problems as uh, the problems of multilinguality. So mm -hmm. when does it break when you try to build a system for, to, for processing uh, I don't know, social workers' notes. Mm, or the, uh, so there are many, many, many domains that are dynamically evolving, including multilinguality domain, including various dialects and social acts and, and how the language uh, changes on uh, the web, right? With all linguistic changes. So there will be always some domains and areas which are extremely low resource. That's why the, no matter how big pre-training corpus is, even if you use the whole internet at the time, when we have these static models that only use pre-training data, we will encounter that language models break on just new, on just how the language has changed mm -hmm. rapidly. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. So this idea that you do the pre-training and then it's kind of a static model. Whereas, I mean, we could talk about it in terms of like humans or yeah, even just like the properties of the model, like you want it to kind of develop over time as things are developing. So like as languages are developing, it even reminds me of code too. Like if your language model is trained on some code base and then the underlying code base changes and it's kind of relying on this memorized code base, then it's going to generate things that like break. And so, yeah, I think this like static idea is uh, something to, to yeah. I, I really like this idea of continual learning, but uh, I'm not sure we currently have a good idea of how to do it without forgetting the older content. Yeah, maybe I'll go back to something you uh, mentioned about the control generation. Is there some connection for you between um, these, like the interests that you had during your PhD, or even the ones we've been talking about, and this idea of like having control over uh, generations? Well, the idea of control generation, I started getting interested in it during my postdoc. <laughs> Does it count? <laughs> this podcast yeah, yeah. about is about my PhD, but during my postdoc, before uh, becoming a faculty. I started learning about, uh, I wanted to learn about computational social science. And then uh, I had this idea of paraphrasing <laughs> that uh, uh, let's uh, take a comment that is uh, biased or toxic and uh, propose a paraphrasing which uh, preserves the meaning <laughs> but removes uh, uh, the bias or toxicity. And this is where I started getting interested in it. It was around 2017. And uh, 
uh, at the time I didn't realize how difficult is this problem, obviously. And we are still working on it, so it's it's fun. Now it's becoming more and more interesting. But mm -hmm. yeah. during my PhD, I don't think I had anything related to controllable generation. No, yeah, it's the podcast is also about how you like uh, you know people pick up new research directions. And I was curious if, like, again, like looking back, there's some thread between them. Um, and then, yeah, going to another section. Um, so you worked on these models called polyglot language models. Um, yeah. Did you did you maybe want to talk about just the backstory behind these and what you were looking into? And then uh, yeah. again, we can like connect it with yeah. today's day. I think it was like. <laughs> This uh, chapter was among the brilliant ideas that also didn't pick up from our side, but became really mainstream in the field. So we presented polyglot models around 2016, not 2016. I think at the, at the same conference, there was another paper, I think by King Yeon and Orhan on uh, similar ideas. And basically that ideas led later, I think, to uh, first multilingual MT system in Google. And uh, then similarly, currently it's, it's, it is a mainstream to use. At the time, this idea was very unnatural, unusual that uh, instead of having multiple systems, like let's take one computational analyzer, throw all data into it and uh, build the one system that processes many different languages or many different modalities or and the initial motivation was let's let's build a system that will uh, kind of for low resource setting it will it will share parameters whenever possible with high resource settings and uh, kind of leverage the knowledge from other languages it was mm -hmm. idea together with my advisor chris dyer and uh, overall i feel it was really kind of important one but yeah this is maybe one of the only one of the chapters that, uh, that really was uh, more kind of, uh, I think, I saw that the idea itself uh, pan out, although mm -hmm. not through our work, which is important. I see. Yeah. And here um, it was on, it was on this, like you were predicting these phone, they're called phones, right? Yeah, so it was, it was a synthetic, a little bit synthetic setup. It was a language model that uh, predicts uh, pronunciations. Mm. Uh, so a language model that, given a phonetic context, would predict what would be the next uh, phones in that language. When we know that phonology of, say, English and Hindi is very different, but we can still leverage in English and other related languages for Hindi to improve phonological language modeling for Hindi. Mm -hmm. and that's why I thought kind of, it was cool that uh, the performance of, for, uh, of individual models of every individual setup was lower than performance of a joint setup, which actually shows that there is some parameter sharing. And it also got me thinking like, um, whether it's for the low resource settings or just like in general moving forward, do you think that ultimately we might go, we might need to go beyond text and start incorpor incorporating multiple modalities? 
like especially if we're in a low resource setting, maybe we have some um, maybe we have some voice data for a certain language, but not necessarily like written text. Um, is this kind of an area that you're interested in or just like in general think about? Yeah, it? very much. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in terms of modeling, there is not much difference between having a multilingual model or massively multimodal model with, which mixes uh, speech data, text data, visual data. Mm-hmm. If we figure out how to uh, build networks that have good parameter sharing and not occupy, occupy different areas just because our systems are bigger, I think that's a very promising ideas. And uh, I, think, I think there is not too much difference in terms of modeling between uh, multimodal systems and uh, multilingual systems or multi-variety systems even with, or multi-domain systems. It all shows kind of different domains of data that need to be effectively combined into a single model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, maybe just like a higher level question. So um, again, like looking at, at all the things you worked on in your thesis, we were kind of talking about this before the mm-hmm. call that like sometimes, at least like when I was a PhD student and like others that I, uh, other people that I talked to, it kind of seems that like the things that you're working on during your PhD is going to be what you're working on forever. Um, <laughs> But then like you also have to like focus on something during your PhD. So now like looking back, um, yeah, like what do you think about this just idea in in general? Like should one kind of just focus and then they can always move on to something else in the future or yeah, I guess I don't have a specific question, but (laughs) yeah, I understand your question. I think it it, it leads us to the beginning of our conversation, as you said, even after we started recording. Mm-hmm. Should one really be focused on things they decided they want to work on? In my opinion, no. <laughs> I, I actually like the idea of uh, being open-minded <laughs> as much as possible uh, and doing just whatever is interesting and fun for you. Uh, I encourage my students, for example, when they attend the conference to go to see talks from areas that are different from uh, their own area of expertise. I don't kind of, I don't have labels also for my students, what they work on. Many of them work on areas that combine new machine learning techniques for NLP, various applications, whether it's multilingual or monolingual. Yes, everybody has tendencies, what is interesting to them, what is their preferred style, but I don't think, I mean, we we are privileged not to restrict ourselves in uh, terms of topics, domain. And I see that, like, I I like being broad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then over the course of like your career, like after your PhD, um, did you begin to, to like pick up different streams of research again, like based on you said like a lot of your research starts with some practical concern. So was it like based on what your students were working on or was it like different things that you got interested in or how did that kind of work out? Uh, it's mutual. It's mutual. I, I, when I, when I started, when I was recruiting students in my first year, 
I had my ideas. I wanted to work on one direction, one student for, for multilinguality, one student for ethics. Uh, but over time, I realized that it doesn't work this way. <laughs> I just, it, we just, I, I just find students that we have, that uh, we have mutual spark <laughs> in the interview. And I really like what they're doing and they like what I'm doing. And we have just common way of thinking and common interests. Once a uh, kind of a student joins my lab, they're open-minded to work on whatever they want. Of course, it's always mutual. It's not something that I have no idea about. I, I, there is an influence from me in terms of my interests. It, it, it kind of how recruitment works, right? I wouldn't bring a student to the lab who has totally disjoint interests with me and totally different thinking style. And uh, we have to have something in common. But mm -hmm. once the match is made, I try to be very people-oriented and open-minded on what we want to work on. And it, 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 showed, it, it, it has proven to be a good strategy. We come up with uh, new problems, new ideas, new directions, things that I couldn't think I would work on when I was doing my PhD. I like it. I'm excited about each of those research projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like for someone listening, we've probably mentioned a lot of them throughout the conversation, but what are kind of some of the things that you're interested in now, uh, like in terms of broad directions or um, specific projects? Yeah. So as very broad directions, I'm, I'm very excited about uh, questions of computational ethics and computational social science. I'm very excited about uh, language generation, just machine learning models for NLP to improve specifically controllable generation. And this include, it can include machine translation, summarization. Uh, I am excited about multilingual NLP. Um, and I want to kind of bridge these areas. So when I talk about multilingual NLP, I want to bring knowledge from ethics and computational social science into multilingual NLP to figure out, for example, how to build cross-cultural knowledge into language generation. When I talk about language generation, I want also to bring kind of knowledge from multilingual NLP and from computational ethics. So it's not really disjoint areas. This is fairly broad. <laughs> Most projects would fall into kind of one of those areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of computational ethics, um, was this another area that kind of, um, it was like relatively new or like closer knit and is now becoming a bigger deal? Yeah. And not a big deal, but I, I think you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was not a thing, as I mentioned, in, I don't know, around 2016. Mm -hmm. I'm now happy to see that the, it, it's, the situation was very different now, obviously. Uh, in 2016, there were maybe a couple of papers. In 2017, there are maybe eight, ten papers. In 2018, there are maybe 50 papers already. And so it's growing exponentially. We realize that the more advanced our models become, they become very nuanced, influenced by data 
generated by people. They pick up on problems that uh, biases that uh, people have, all, all kinds of problems that we have as humans now uh, amplified in systems. So there are full tracks focusing on computational ethics and uh, journal issues and uh, yeah, so it's now a big field. Many mm -hmm. people are interested. I, I uh, honestly, when I was doing a postdoc from some of senior faculty members, I received an advice to focus also on things <laughs> that the community would be interested in. <laughs> not to waste my time on things like computational ethics. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm glad I did not follow that advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> so are there like, um, um, I don't know, like outcomes that you would like to see? Or is it still hard to say like exactly like since the models are evolving so quickly like exactly what we would want out of the models if that makes sense in terms of technical modeling i would like to see some paradigm shifts in the way we build models today mm. uh, that one example would be getting rid of subwords <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as uh, something that is not informed by any language, like subwords, units of units that are not informed by what a word is or what a unit of meaning is and not transferable across languages. Mm -hmm. So this is in terms of like uh, the current way we build models very across all NLP applications. In terms of uh, bigger picture outcomes for, say, multilinguality, what I would want to see is uh, models being more inclusive in terms of who are potential users of these models. Meaning, also what, what I mentioned before is being able to extend these models not only to big languages, not only to uh, language labels, like English, French, German, but to language varieties, which is African-American English or an English of a bilingual German uh, uh, Swahili speaker. I'm just coming up with some labels. And you can see that there are many, many thousands of such labels. And this would require really paradigm shifts in how models are built and how pre-training data is structured and what the labels we use and also whether and the subword would be the actual meaningful processing unit mm -hmm. in terms of ethics what i would want to see that it would be a consideration that underlies any research I don't know if it makes sense to kind of build a big language model without ethical considerations and then having ethical ethical track papers that criticize and fix that model. This should not be disjoint research areas, right? It, it should be kind of one of the considerations, like we pre-process our data in certain ways uh, and there should be kind of considerations what kind of... Um, 
problems we want to avoid when building such models. So more proactive modeling in general, more proactive approaches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like the, um, well, first of all, that was, that was an amazing summary of like multiple areas. And uh, yeah, it seems like the data that we train these really language model, large language models on, like looking back five years from now, it might look like a, like we were taking a sledgehammer to like chisel a statue or something. Yeah. <laughs> With what we're doing right now. Yeah. And then, yeah, one, one more just like thing I want to ask about is, um, like NLP as a as like a research community, how it's kind of changed over time. Like, have you noticed? Like, are there big differences in just doing research and like the community now versus when you were doing a PhD? And like, are there pros? Are there uh, cons? Yeah, I'm very optimistic. <laughs> mm -hmm. I I really like the current changes. When I was doing my PhD. Very, or when I was doing my undergrad, very often I could be the only woman in the room. And uh, now I see you know, there is an awareness of diversity and I see we have more diverse uh, of people that are interested in NLP. And once we graduate more diverse students, they establish more diverse labs. And this changes actually also research areas and research topics mm -hmm. that are considered important or not. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I'm very happy about. I'm very happy to see more awareness and change in this direction. Just the understanding that there is not one um, demographics that dominates what research is and what it should be and what are research questions that are important. Mm -hmm. So this diversity of perspectives and uh, leading to diversity of research questions and caused by the diversity of people who participate in it. I think this is one good change that happened really in recent years. Mm. Uh, in terms of topics, research problems, I'm really excited about development of big models because like, as I mentioned earlier, like earlier we just tried to build some systems that barely worked, you know, but now systems like, but now research questions become more and more nuanced and interested, interesting. When we work on semantics, we work really on more finer grained areas of semantics. When we work on generation, we want on really more finer grained of controls. Mm -hmm. When we work on multilinguality, we work on more finer grained research uh, language varieties. All like we work on areas which we couldn't think as sub areas of NLP. This is because of kind of more fundamental improvements on, in base models and thanks to neur neural networks and bigger data. So I see like these huge trends that uh, changed very much. So when I started my PhD, first two years, it was pre-neural era. <laughs> I started in uh, 2011 and then until 2000, oh, 2000 yeah. And then until 2013, 14, there were like before word embeddings, the research was very different. And then there was a big shift. And then later there was another big shift with pre-trained models. And I kind of really like this progress. In, 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 so to summarize, this is a progress in people and progress in uh, models and approaches. And both of them are good for the community. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that is that is cool to hear. And then in terms of the larger models, like, do you think that um, I I guess like tying in the question of like academia versus industry, um, do you think that there's kind of uh, it's like easier to work on certain types of problems in industry and there's still like a wide enough set in academia um, because especially with the larger models like maybe one difference from before is before anyone could just uh, you know on their laptop or something like train a model um, but now increasingly they're only available to a certain uh, you know set of labs so how do you think about um, this there is um... I, I have my reservations overall about um, that that uh, a lot of research is driven from industry because of um, the questions that are considered important are a little bit different when your motivation is to improve a product or a company to monetize better whether you're not restricted by these questions outside mm. of industry and yes you know, there is a problem with the fact that very big models are accessible to companies but there is also a positive side of it because um, uh, researchers in academia have to be more creative, more forward-looking, uh, influenced less. But what is like currently big hype? And think what are interesting questions like five years ahead. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there is a problem in terms of um, overall motivation and domination of. of um, I don't know, PR and uh, of like how important is a big language model that beats some human benchmark because uh, whoever understands actually NLP understands that there are so many areas as we discussed throughout this podcast that are really not solved problems, low resource areas. They just happen to fall outside of interest of these and of big players. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I don't know if I would want to restrict, for example, any sort of research or anything like this. I'm, I'm up for all for freedom. And uh, I would like to see more interesting creative research done in academia, uh, even without access to building huge language models, more driven by insightful research questions. Uh, more creative architectures but Mm -hmm. if there is in parallel actually some regulation on uh, kind of the industrial uh, mm, resources uh, how how resources are consumed how research is presented and publicized it could be a good thing Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I see. So yeah, there's almost like there's a set of research questions that's independent of large language models. Then there's like the issue of like 
can we feasibly scientifically study large language models? And then there's like an even separate question of um, the kind of like sociological effects of <laughs> of like promoting or like valuing certain research questions in a certain way. Something exactly. Like yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think I've only asked easy questions throughout this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, I appreciate really it. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, there's actually two questions though that I always ask on every podcast. So okay. there's still two more, um, and they're they're both supposed to be fun, as with all the questions. And one is to think about uh, objective functions. So if you could think of like some objective function that you say was um, kind of guiding your behavior or like your research activities as a PhD student, um, what would it be? Was it like just scientific curiosity or was it like optimizing towards a certain, uh, you know, future job or something? No. And then like if you, <laughs> if you look at uh, today's day, like would you say the objective function uh, has changed or stayed the same? No, uh, it hasn't changed. Yeah, like like I said, it's uninspiring. But my objective function was just to have fun and to figure out what are interesting questions, without thinking even kind of what is my strategy, how I will present it in my thesis. And I think that this was beneficial. So my objective function was scientific curiosity and just personal interest, fun. Uh, yeah, where I want to travel for the next conference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, objective function just to enjoy your research. Mm -hmm. uh, and and yeah, that is the changed. cool thing. That, yeah, that is the the really cool thing about being in research. <laughs> yeah, like, there is a cool thing. We can so. invent our own problem. We can invent our own solution. We can sell it well. <laughs> <laughs> if we manage to make it work and then we go to some fun part of the world where we didn't think we would visit to present it and to meet people from kind of all kinds of, that do all kinds of work and i think in in this respect this is the best job in the world right mm -hmm. <laughs> and every time we put our objective function as uh, a label here is my research direction or a lab, or my objective function is to crank five papers this year or my objective function is to get this job. I mean, we are losing all the fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I mean, I think that itself is good advice. But the last question is about advice for a, for a new researcher. Um, Follow so your objective function. <laughs> Follow <laughs> this go. objective function that we just discussed. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Perfect. <laughs> um, well, yeah, this has been a really fun conversation. For and, me too. Um, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. yeah thank thanks. you for insightful questions. I really had to refresh my memory on my PhD thesis. <laughs> I would have never known. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to come on the thesis for you. Thank you very much. It was fun. Bye.